Good afternoon, uh, everybody. My name is uh, David Thompson, and uh, I'm going to be talking on the subject of uh, your compassion or our compassion. Is it humanitarian or is it biblical? And uh, I am a uh, general surgeon. I'll be showing a few pictures, uh, telling you a little bit about where I'm coming from. I, my wife and I have uh, served as uh, medical missionaries to Gabon. Is, is this microphone on? Sounds like it's on now. All right. Thank you. So let me say that again. Uh, I'm David Thompson, and uh, the subject is your compassion, humanitarian or biblical. Uh, my wife and I have been uh, medical missionaries to the country of Gabon for the last 30, 34 years. Um, I am a general surgeon, and uh, I'll be showing a few pictures uh about where I'm coming from, but I'd just like to take a little poll here. How many of you have been on a short-term mission trip to a developing country? Okay, almost all of you. Thank you. How many of you come from a medical persuasion? Okay, most of you. How about relief, development, something else? Okay, great. I think that this subject is going to be germane and interesting for you uh, from either direction. As a matter of fact, any time that we're involved in compassion, I think that this uh, is an important issue, particularly in the church, particularly for Christians. Uh, if you're not sure where Gabon is, uh, just to give you a little bit uh, of where I'm coming from, it's on the west coast of Africa, uh, right where the equator cuts across uh, the, the continent. It's hot. It's uh, very rainy. Uh, we have an eight-month rainy season, 10 feet of rain per year, mostly rainforest, a very beautiful place. Uh, Gabon is about the size of the state of Colorado, and we've been working in the southern part of the country where there is a population center. Gabon is not heavily populated. It is not an easy place to grow large amounts of crops. There are only 1.5 million people, about 60 different tribal groups uh, in that area, and we went there. We were asked to go there to provide health care for the two poorest provinces in the country uh, 34 years ago. Today our hospital looks like this. It started from a single dispensary. And uh, God has done all kinds of uh, surprising things. Uh, we're probably um, more amazed than anybody else uh, at what God is able to do. That's what it looks like today. Uh, and, of course, during these past 34 years, uh, I've made so many mistakes that I know a lot. Now, we call that experience, I guess. And uh, hopefully I, I can share some things and uh, raise some questions in this issue in a way that will help you to think more clearly through some of the issues that you certainly will face if you continue to respond compassionately to people. Uh, today, 85% of our patients come not just from the radius around the hospital, but even from uh, the capital city of Gabon. Um, our practice includes uh, people who fall off of uh, vehicles and uh, gunshot wounds from hunting and um, of course, uh, people with uh, neglected tumors and injuries, broken bones, whatever. We're also involved in surgical education uh, with the, the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. That surgical education program started at our hospital and is now uh, spread to six uh, hospitals and six programs in Africa, one in Bangladesh. Uh, but uh, what is important, uh, I don't want to go over all that so much, as, but that we have also, we're, we're involved in training and discipling uh, African surgeons in five-year program, and that includes teaching about mercy. 
and, and uh, modeling mercy. So let me just go right into a scenario for you, and I'd like to get your participation and your input in this. Um, one day about uh, eight years ago, I was operating, uh, and um, one of my residents came in and uh, said, Dr. Thompson, there's a terrible case in the emergency room. As soon as you're done, uh, please come. And so I finished up the case and went to the emergency room. And first thing I noticed as I approached uh, was that there were uh, all the patients that normally would be in the waiting in the emergency room to be cared for emergency cases. They were all sitting outside on benches. And uh, that's that's usually a bad sign. It's just a, a terrible smell when I went into the to the emergency department. And uh, behind the curtain in the corner uh, was a young boy, 15 years old. He was comatose, and his leg was dead from the knee uh, down. His grandfather was standing there weeping, and uh, the story that came out was that um, uh, the two of them had been hunting in the night uh, 36 hours before. In the dark, they often do that with flashlights strapped to their head. And they look around for deer, and when they think they see one, they switch it off and try and get closer. Anyway, in all this crawling around in the bushes, he uh, stuck uh, his thigh, put his uh, calf right into, right up against the thorn bush. A two-inch thorn went into his calf, very deep. He pulled it out, kept hunting. But by morning, he was having tremendous pain. And so his grandfather actually had to help uh, help him get back to the village. It was about five kilometers away. They were walking. That, uh, then he became so ill, he couldn't get out of bed that night. They tried to get a car to take him to the hospital. It wasn't until the next morning that they were able to get a vehicle to drive him to the hospital, drive to the hospital. They're about 20 kilometers away. And so here he is now. Uh, here he was uh, about 36 hours after the original injury, comatose, his leg completely dead below the knee. Um, as I... Uh, examined him. Uh, one of the first thing that I noticed when I finally uh, put my hands on his uh, on his leg was that his thigh, under his thigh, there was crepitus, and that continued all the way up into his buttocks. Now we've had about six or seven cases like this over the years, um, and uh, pre- every previous case that I have operated on, no matter how aggressively that I treat them with broad spectrum antibiotics, uh, amputations, debridements, whatever you want to. Do uh, we don't have hyperbaric oxygen, of course? Um, all of them have died within 24 hours. And uh, so I knew at that moment that this boy was a hopeless case. So uh, now the dilemma begins. Unlike hospitals in the United States and in the developed world, when you have a uh, massive trauma or some kind of a case like this, you have all the supplies that you need. Uh, you're not going to exhaust the pharmacy. If you do, there's always another place you can get it. We have limited resources. We have uh, orders that come every every uh, four to six months, and if we're at the end of a four, uh, six-month period, it, it might be delayed. And so you never use up all of your antibiotics on one or two patients. We had a very low supply of antibiotics at this point in time. If I used most of those antibiotics on this boy, uh, I would be basically wasting them. I mean, I wouldn't have enough for somebody who could possibly survive. And uh, also, we're talking about large volumes of intravenous fluids. We're talking about operating time. and There are other patients that need surgery. Uh, We're talking about a lot of different uh, choices that we have to make. So here's the question. Should I... Just give our precious antibiotics to, to this boy 
and uh, use other resources that could make a big difference for other people? Uh, or should I pull the curtain on him and let him die? What would you do? You're the doctor or the nurse. What would be your decision? How many of you would uh, just pull out all the stops and go for it? A few of you? Okay. How many of you would uh, not do that and basically as compassionately as possible pull the curtain and let him die? Okay, about the same number. So these are the kind of situations that you face in countries where you have limited resources. And uh, we have certain built-in ideas and, and principles that we follow or we try to follow. Uh, maybe we haven't thought through them uh, too carefully. And that, that's kind of what I want to do because these, these are not infrequent situations. So... Um, it doesn't seem to be real clear what exactly I should have done in this situation, but um, let me just um, switch to the code of conduct that most of the world is following today. Uh, that's involved in relief work or development work. It's the International Code of Conduct for Disaster Relief. You can find it uh, on the Red Cross, Red Crescent website. They came up with it a number of years ago. Over 400 NGOs, probably closer to 500 now, have signed out on this thing. This is sort of the guiding uh, code of conduct for these kind of situations that we can find ourselves in, whether it's disaster relief or whether you're caring for medical people in a, in a poor environment. And so we're not going to go through all ten of them, but we're just going to go through several of them. The first one, of course, the first one is the humanitarian imperative comes first. In other words, you, you respond to the humanitarian need first. If you come on an accident, the first thing isn't to uh, take photographs. Um, first thing isn't to um, ask the person what religion he is. Of course, the first thing is... You go up, you try and save his life, right? You try and keep him alive. And I think we could all agree with that. The second one of those is that aid is given regardless of race, creed, uh, or nationality of the recipients and without adverse distinction of any kind. Aid priorities are calculated on the basis of need alone. Does anybody have a problem with that one? I, I think we could all agree with that. Sounds, you know, it's... it's uh, Makes good sense. Number three, aid will not be used to further a particular political or religious standpoint. I'm not sure uh, exactly how you do that if you're a Christian, because the fact if you're a Christian and you're helping somebody who's dying, and they know that you're a Christian, then you are furthering a particular religious standpoint. If you're an American, and you're helping somebody, and they know that you're an American, you may be furthering a political standpoint without even wanting to. But um, certainly, if you decide to talk to somebody about Christ, share your faith, pray for somebody, you are violating this, uh, this rule. Is this important for the Christian? And if so, why? Anybody want to? Yes. 
Okay, we're dealing with souls. Right, we're dealing with souls. We're not just dealing with bodies. Yes, did you have a question? Okay, we're under under a higher authority. Um, so let's just kind of keep that in mind, and we'll go on to the next, uh, the fourth one. We shall endeavor not to act as instruments of government foreign policy. Any problem with that? I think we'd all agree that we're not going to say, uh, you know, if uh, if you don't agree with American foreign policy, we can't uh, give you uh, any medication. We shall respect culture and custom. Okay? No problem. I don't think any of us have problems. We shall attempt to build disaster response on local capacities. Now, this... This uh, might be a little difficult to, to see a problem with, but let me just say, um, in, this local res- in this local situation, we have limited resources, right? We have limited resources. We have limited capacity. And so our response has to be, de- has to be decided on our limited capacity. So, you know, some of us are we're kind of hesitant. Should we use all of our limited antibiotics and supplies and medicine and resources on this boy who's, who's not going to live, or should we use them? Well, because we have a limited capacity, uh, the rule would be no. We would pull the curtain on this boy and let him die. Okay, so the question is, if I pulled the curtain on this boy and let him die, before God, would I be doing the right thing or would I not? And why? Any thoughts? That's right. Every one of these patients are going to die. Yes. Okay. God doesn't ask us to be successful, only obedient. Any other? Okay, could pray and ask to do something different. Now, this boy was comatose, uh, so I couldn't really talk to him about Christ, right? But I'll tell you what I was worried about. I was worried about the fact that this boy had never heard the gospel. Now, for somebody who's a humanitarian, that is not a big issue, unless you're also a Christian. But for me, as a Christian physician, as somebody who is there, the reason I'm there is so that people get a chance to hear about Christ before they die. This is really a big thing for me. And I think it is for most of us. Um, let's just take a look at, let's just compare a little bit. I have a, some, some little tables that I put together uh, that I think help us work through some of these issues. So in the humanitarian uh, column, we have a, a humanitarian column and there's a biblical one. And so... Genuine compassion. Is the humanitarian genuinely compassionate? Yeah, I think so, and so is the Christian. So, you know, we can handle that. What about suffering? Uh, does, he have, do they have, does the humanitarian have answers for why a person might be suffering? Certainly not in the grand scheme of things. Maybe they could say you're suffering because you have malaria, but the whole question about why would there be malaria in this world not really too many answers, are there? Except perhaps political ones or something like that, uh, which we don't want to get into anyway. Uh, does a Christian have an answer for suffering? 
We do. It may be pretty hard to explain to somebody who's comatose, but still, I think, in different situations, we do. What about answers for injustice? Does the humanitarian have answers for injustice? What kind of answers, perhaps, I should ask? Hmm? Okay, and, you know, it, it's sort of, who's going to provide justice? If there's injustice, who do we turn to if we're a humanitarian? African Union, the, you know, United Nations, World Court, in, anywhere we can, but it's basically we're going to turn to other humans, right? Human institutions, human powers. Uh, what about the Christian? We might do that, too. We might do that, but is that all we would do? Where is the ultimate justice in the Christian, in the Christian worldview? It's provided by God, isn't it? So, um, God's perfect justice versus human human justice, and maybe if we go extra legal, it's going to be revenge, which is a big issue in Africa. All right, what about answers for the dying? There's a what? what have, have you heard some of the humanitarian answers for the dying? What do most secular, let's go to secular humanitarians, what, what would they say about, about death? If somebody's dying, it's sort of like, huh? This is, the end. this is it, right? I mean, Carl Sagan said, after this, there's nothing. Really comforting, isn't it? I would feel uh, not too comforted. But what does Christian say? There is a place. There is a better place. There is a wonderful place. And there's room in it for you. Right, heaven. So already we're seeing the pretty major differences. Um, let's go to another comparison. Uh, what about uh, who gets the glory for humanitarian work? A person? Okay. Organization? Okay. Basically people do, right? They get the glory. They're the ones that get the big prizes and and the Nobel Peace Prize, and everybody looks at them. They're printed up in the paper, and we're just all so happy to have our photos taken and uh, being in those situations. Um, what about for uh, biblical compassion? Who gets the glory? Who should get the glory, perhaps, I should ask? God should get the glory. Uh, what about reasons for service? Why does the humanitarian serve? This might be a little more complex. For some, it's glory. What about uh, other reasons? Some might be guilt. Okay, it might really make somebody feel good. You know, there is that feel-good thing when you help somebody. Significance, personal significance, okay. Um, it's sort of, uh, it is trying to help others, but the motivation behind it is, is somewhat different. What about for the Christian? Yeah, it's to please God. It's a vocation. So that's a big difference. You know, I, I uh, take care of sick people. It gives me great joy to help sick people. Um, but I don't, I'm not there just because I need that good feeling day after day. Uh, it's there because I love God and he cares about them. Yes? I was going to say that love would be the factor for the physical. That's right. Love is a, probably the best word of all. Okay, what about um, reasons? Um, uh, what about commitment? Uh, 
What's a commitment for most humanitarian projects uh, that you've seen or read about or been involved in? We're talking what? A month, a year, a project? Isn't it most of the time for a particular crisis or a project? There might be some longer ones, but basically for the most part, and this is a generalization, we're, we're talking about uh, shorter term. What about for the Christian? Hmm? It's for life. We're all, we're all in it for life, right? This isn't something we do six months uh, of one uh, every tenth year. So it's a lifestyle. What about uh, coping emotionally? How do, how do uh, I don't know if you've, you've been close or been in situations where, you know, you have just awful things happening. You're taking care of, you're in a crisis, you're in a disaster, there's people starving, or you've had, you know, you're having a massive numbers of children die in your hospital and you're treating them all, they're dying in front of you. I mean, some of you have been through that. Um, you're, you know, you have surgical cases that come in and, and it's just, the stuff, it's really emotionally very hard sometimes. How do, how do humanitarians uh, and Christians differ in the way they deal with that? Okay, might dump it on another human. What's another way that's very frequent? Mm, how do they deal with the blame? How do they deal with the guilt? Yes. Yeah, alcohol can be a problem. There can be addictions. There can be partying. You know, you, you just get away from you have a big party and get totally soused. I, I mean, you see all kinds of different ways. How about for the Christian? That's right. You draw closer to God. You may need some time to just go and be away and time in prayer and you find your strength. But you don't find your strength generally, I hope, in alcohol or in partying or in, you know, uh, you may need to get away. But So these are big differences. And particularly if you have worked uh, with folks who are, um, you know, people who are working for NGOs and stuff, you see this. You see a huge difference between the way Christians deal with stress, the stress of helping uh, people who are suffering versus the way Christians find their strength. Finally, this is the last chart. Uh, resources, humanitarian resources, uh, what can you say about them? They're limited. How does that compare with uh, biblical? How does that compare with the resources that God has? Unlimited. I mean, I can tell you it's true. It really is true. It's unlimited. When I need something and it, it costs $50,000, I just say to God, God, I don't have this, uh, but I need it. And I have just seen God provide over and over and over again. So it really is amazing. Um, and finally, the eternal life option. When a person, uh, when a humanitarian is dealing with a patient who is dying, they have nothing to say. They have nothing to say to a person who is dying. Whereas Christians, as Christians, we have hope. We can offer those people hope. We can actually pull the curtain aside and go sit down with them and say, listen, brother, listen, sister, I know this is really awful and my heart goes out to you, but there is something I can tell you. It's just the beginning. Okay, so um, I hope this has been of some help to you. Um, now, 
I bring, I raise an ob- the answer to this question is fairly obvious. Is humanitarian work what God is calling his church to do? Okay, how many say yes? How many say no? Okay, um, well, l- let's keep looking at this because I think if I had asked this question at the very beginning, most of us would, you know, raise their hand. There's, there's a book out called... Um, um, uh, Christian humanitarian that's very interesting um, that that sort of brings out this thing that it's the same, it's one and the same but let's just look at a few more things this is one of my favorite pictures, you've probably seen it uh, where firemen are getting are posing for a picture while the house burns down uh, and so uh, we could say well, you know, the world is such a mess it, it's really not our home so why should, why should we feel too badly about it? We're all leaving. It's just a matter of time. Uh, we're going to live a certain number of years, and then we're going to be gone, and we're going to be in heaven. Or maybe the Lord's coming soon. We hope so. And so we can't fix it, so you know, should we even lose sleep over it? Um, should we strive to make the world a better place, or should we focus on evangelism? All right? So... Uh, this is kind of a tough question because I'm, I'm, I'm posing it to you in a way that you can't get it right. Either way. <laughs> but we'll move on. I just wanted to give you, help you to see this dilemma. This is what Jesus said. Uh, Jesus was the author, we know, of Isaiah, as was the, all, the whole Trinity. And I'm sure Jesus, it seems that Jesus had knew this book by heart, if not the whole Bible, the, old, the whole Old Testament. This is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. <laughs> now, that, that, I know that we would never do that in our culture, but in some African cultures there are so many relatives that this is really a big problem. Um, So if we go back to this previous slide, should we strive to make the world a better place? What do you think the answer is? Yes, Yes, absolutely. Um, But that's not the only scripture that talks about what we, God calls us to do. In Romans 10, 14 to 15, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have not heard about him? How can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how can anyone go and tell them without being sent? This is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. I've gone through these three slides just to to point out that it's not either or. In the Bible, it is not evangelism or um, compassionate ministries. It's both. It's always both. The next question, this is a shocking picture, but I I want to shock. How should we help? How should we help? Now, this is a child with a burn, serious burn. Uh, This is uh, second and third degree burns over uh, 40% of this child's body. These children take huge resources. They can take all of the the, uh, silvadine in the the hospital in a period of of two or three weeks. Um, Very expensive treatment. Should we, 
Should we even try? There are some who just say, put a mosquito net over them and just let them die. I've never been able to do that. Even if I know that these children are not going to survive, I don't believe that this is the way Jesus would deal with them. And I don't think that we should either. Putting him under a mosquito net and ignoring them is, is a very hard way to show love, in my opinion. God's orders are, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Make disciples of all nations. Those are the three great commands of Jesus. And I don't think that's too hard for us to follow. It's not so many things that we can't keep them all before us in our minds as we're serving him anywhere we are in the world at any time during our lives. We can keep these things before us. But here, here is, I think, the greatest problem for Westerners, for those of us who come from uh, well-to-do countries, we're well-educated, we are maybe the cream of the crop or we've been told that, Perhaps we're physicians, but we are mostly professionals. And that is this. Are we ready to do this? We are ready to lead. I know I'm always ready to lead. We're ready to give orders. We're ready to teach. But are we ready to get on our hands and our knees and wash the feet of lepers? This was the definition of love that Jesus gave. He was very clear. This is how he calls us to serve. And it is very messy. Any of you who have not been to, I mean, any of you have been to a mission hospital and you've gone in the emergency room and you've seen all the cases that come in and it's just messy. I mean, whenever you need a glove, they don't have any and your IVs that are dripping and you have to work on them and there's no gloves left. They use them all up. And I mean, it's just, there's no soap when you go to wash your hands. Nothing to dry your hands on but your clothes. It just goes on and on. It's just messy. And, and you, no matter how you organize it, it's, it's not neat. It's not tidy. But it's what God calls us to do. I don't think... I think that a better name for the Good Samaritan story is the story of three encounters. Two of them failed. One of them succeeded. I want to move quickly now through these last few things so we have time to discuss a little bit. But in the story of the three encounters or the Good Samaritan, however you want to think about it, um, Jesus was teaching about love and what the, the, um, the third man, the Samaritan, did uh, to help that injured man. So what are the two primary things do you think that this story teaches us to do about suffering when we encounter it? The two primary things that that man did, what were they? You could probably make it into three or four, but I'm saying two. Yes. Okay. He, he stopped. He didn't walk on by. Okay. That certainly is one of them. What else? Yes. Oh, you were just doing your hair. Sorry. Yes. He provided for aftercare. He provided for aftercare. Okay, that's very important. Somebody else? I just said he did something about it. What did he do? He helped. Okay. He, he, he touched the wound. He didn't have gloves on. He touched the wounds. He, he took his own, probably his own clothes, and he used his own resources, and he cleaned those, says he put oil on his, on his wounds. Okay, then he picked him up. I mean, I don't know if the guy had back problems or not, but I do. He, he put him on the, his donkey. How did he do that? 
I mean, that's heavy. Uh, you, I, about uh, two months ago, there was a, a, a woman that um, uh, we had to pick up uh, who was bleeding, and she was unconscious, and she'd taken all her clothes off first. And so we're trying to get her up on the gurney the right way, and she slipped. I mean, it's not easy uh, to do that kind of stuff. He did all of that. But the second thing is really important. He, he used his own resources. And this, this is where I think the fault line is in, in American Christendom between obedience and disobedience to the teaching of Christ. It's about money and stuff. 75% of Americans, uh, Christians, do not even give 10% of their income to their churches because they believe they're too poor. If you earn $25,000 a year, most of these statistics come out of Richard Stern's book, The Hole in Our Gospel, and I have a slide on that. If you earn $25,000 a year, you are wealthier than 90% of the people in the world. If you earn $55,000 or more, you're in the top 1% of income earners in the world. 3.3 billion people in the world live on less than $2 a day, and 7% of the people in the world own a car. I think most of us probably own a car. You know the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Which one are we like? I know that immediately I identify with Lazarus, but are we really Lazarus? If you have a job, this is another way of putting it, live in a house that has electricity, running water, and a cement floor, and have some kind of transportation to work, you're wealthier than 75% of the people in the world. And then we have all of these terrible statistics that many of you have heard probably during this conference. I'm not going to dwell, dwell on them because I want to leave enough time. Um, but we, we are really the rich man. We are not Lazarus. 76% of American evangelicals do not feel they can afford to give 10% of their income. This is evangelicals now. The average giving of American church members in 2005 was 2.58% of their income. This, this is the richest church in the world. Now, these are our statistics. Churches in America, this is the one I just absolutely, I'm just horrified about. Churches in America keep 98% of what their people give to serve the church community. This translates to six cents per Christian per day for the rest of the world. So which one are we, the rich man or Lazarus? We have a problem. We have a very serious problem in our compassion. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you are refusing to help me. And you know that in that story, people will say, but Lord, when did we see you hungry and naked? And he said, when you didn't do this for the least of these, my brothers, you didn't help me. Our blind spot is money. This is translated from the message. This is pretty hard stuff to read, but it's Isaiah chapter 1, verses 14 to 17. God says, I'm sick of your religion, 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 while you go right on sinning. When you put on your next prayer performance, I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or loud or often you pray, I'll not be listening. And do you know why? Because you've been tearing people to pieces and your hands are bloody. 
Go home and wash up. Clean up your acts. Sweep your lives clean of your evil doings so I don't have to look at them any longer. Say no to wrong. Learn to do good. Work for justice. Help the down and out. Stand up for the homeless. Go to bat for the defenseless. We have a choice. If historians look back at our generation 100 years from now, a generation that in America that has over 340,000 churches and 155 million regular church goers, what are they going to say? We need to communicate the love of Jesus through compassion as a lifestyle. We're not humanitarians. We're Christians. We're the followers of Jesus. And this is how the followers of Jesus are to live. We must live our lives radically. How many of you have read the book Radical? I recommend it to you. I love that book. It's about radical Christianity, which is really just basically what Jesus taught and showed us. Be prepared to tell your story when asked. If you're living your life for Jesus radically, you're compassionate to people, you're loving to people, you're letting God change your character, you're obeying all of the teachings of Christ, then people are going to ask you why. Why are you doing this? Why are you helping the poor? Why are you giving up your, your Saturdays to, to help the neighbor next door? Why are you helping people who are drunks and alcoholics, whatever it is that God is calling you to do? Be prepared to tell your story when asked because God does not invite us to simply live our faith and remain silent. Learn to explain the gospel where you are. Now, it's different in different countries. It's different in different settings. When I was in medical school, the way I shared the gospel with my fellow medical students is different than the way I share the gospel with, with uh, my African patients. It's different. Be prepared for whatever situation you're in. And finally, pray often with people who are hurting. Maybe you say, I'm not an extrovert. All of these things that I've listed here have nothing to do with whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. Pray often with people who are hurting. Almost, there's almost nobody, even in medicine, who will refuse to let you pray for them. I pray for almost all of my patients. I pray for them in the emergency room. And just let me get back to the story of this boy. I prayed for this boy and his grandfather. And I said, Lord, help us to help this boy so that he gets the chance to hear the gospel. We took him to the operating room and I took off his leg below the knee even though I knew that was not enough. Made long incisions in his, in his thigh and his buttocks all the way down to the, through the fascia to expose it and let the air out and the gas and gas grain green is what he had and put him on broad spectrum antibiotics and IVs and put him on oxygen, put him in our ICU, watched him overnight. The next morning, we came around uh, with my residents to see him on rounds, and he was awake. And we thought, wow, maybe God's going to heal this boy. Because God does sometimes heal people, just like that, in spite of our mistakes even. And so we prayed. We laid hands on him, all my residents and I. We prayed again, and we said, God, heal this boy. Heal him completely. And then uh, I, said to the, I said to this boy and I said to the grandfather, would you like to know about Jesus? And they said, yes, 
because they had seen the love of Jesus. They had experienced it already. So we sent our chaplain over, and about an hour later, both the grandfather and this boy gave their lives to Christ. Around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we heard that he wasn't doing well. We went back to the ICU. He was in shock. We tried everything. We lost him. And he died. But he died alive. That's the difference. In my book, that's the most important difference between the follower of Christ and humanitarian. And I would really urge you not to see yourselves as humanitarians. You're much more than that. If you're the child of the king, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are not a humanitarian only. Just uh, some principles of uh, Christian mercy. I put these up because these are quite a bit different from the ten principles uh, for the um, NGOs, international community. Jesus is our model and of, of our, for our compassion, and the Bible is our guide. We are to help those we encounter regardless of the cause of their misfortune, even if they are enemies or if it involves risk to ourselves, requires our own resources, does not profit us in any way and until they are able to care for themselves. That's a lot of stuff that comes out of the story of the Samaritan of the three encounters. We are to heal the sick out of compassion, not as a means to get them to do something else. We help people who suffer with the same love that, we, that motivates us to tell them about Jesus. It's not one for the other. We are to heal the sick through faith and prayer, even as we use the resources God has given to us. They are not separate. They are not, they're together. Everything we know about healing has come from God. All the resources that we know about helping the sick comes from God. The immune system comes from God. All our natural defenses and God's supernatural power, they're all together. They all come from God. And we need to involve, we need to include prayer in our care for the sick. God wants us to bring the people we help to Jesus. It's not enough just to prolong their lives so they can go to hell more comfortably. God commands us to heal those who are oppressed by demons, not to ignore them or run in fear from them. That's a whole other subject. I'm not going to go into it. But at our hospital, we, our chaplains uh, have uh, a ministry of delivering people who are really oppressed by demons. They're, they're, they're almost crazy, not totally. And when these uh, demons are sent packing, it's just exactly the way you read it in the New Testament. They're, they're thrown out of these people, and they walk out of that room cured. It's almost as good as surgery. The church that does not reach out to those who are in need with tangible help and the gospel is not the church of Jesus Christ. Well, let me just uh, put this slide up here of resources. Um, I would reckon if you find this subject, uh, if you found this subject interesting, uh, Richard Stern's The Hole in Our Gospel, very powerful book, uh, The Samaritan Way by David Crocker, uh, and of course, When Helping Hurts, another great book. I've got a manuscript ready to... Uh, ready to print, but haven't got a printer yet, a uh, publisher yet called um, Have Mercy. But uh, I really would encourage you to read these other books um, on the subject, and I think you'll find them helpful. So if you uh, want to know, uh, I'll go back to that previous slide, but uh, this is just how to get in touch with me and uh, our website, uh, bungalowhospital.org, and I'm also involved with the PACS program. Those are our websites. Any questions?
Yes. Some of the about the demonic stuff. It's pretty wild. It's pretty wild stuff. I've sat in in a number of uh, of the sessions, and our pastors start out by asking the person. Usually, they have really strange symptoms. They've come through the medical department, and they've got. Uh, here's a typical case. A young woman came and said, uh, um, I'm, I'm having this, uh, there's this uh, spirit that comes every night and uh, 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 wants to have sex with me. And it's been going on for several years, and now I don't want it anymore. I'm scared of it. So it's like, okay. I mean, you know, here in the States, you would sort of send them off to the psychiatrist or give them some medication to sleep better. But that is a classic, uh, that is a classic history of somebody who's being, uh, attacked by spirits. Uh, the pastors, what they start with was they explain the gospel. And they say, we can help you, but you need to understand our power comes from Jesus. What do you what do you believe about Jesus? If you want Jesus to help you be delivered from this spirit, then you need to put your faith in him. And they talk that person through. If that person says, I'm not ready to do that, they say, okay, let's, why don't you come back next week? You think about it. Uh, but if they say, yes, I want to follow Jesus, they say, okay. And they lead them to a prayer of faith. And they say, okay, now what we're going to do is we're going to challenge this, this demon to, to show itself, and we want you to just not respond. You close your eyes. You do not respond. Okay? You'll hear us. Don't answer. And if there's no spirit there, no, it's not going to answer. And then they just say, in the name of Jesus, spirit, uh, you evil spirit, we command you to manifest yourself in the name of Jesus. And usually within a minute, something crazy happens. You know, start shaking, fall on the floor. You can see all kinds of things, and they move the chairs aside, and then they just start commanding that spirit in the name of Jesus to come out. They quote scriptures that they've memorized, and they, they really take charge of that situation. Usually with within 15 minutes, to, sometimes it takes two hours, but most of the time it's much less than that. Everything just stops. The person just goes limp, and then they'll call them, Mary, 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 wake up, wake up. And they just kind of wake up out of a trance and say, are you okay? Yeah. What, what happened? What did you see? I don't know. I just feel different. And then you just see this over and over again. And they've been delivered. They're free. It's, it's just the same thing as you see uh, in the, in the gospel. So that is a ministry that I think uh, we need to get back to in the church. Yes? I don't think we have an ethics committee per se. Uh, we, we do have a committee that, that looks at research, the ethics of research projects, but I don't think we have one per se. The, the pastors are um, they're supervised by the administrator of the hospital and the, and the hospital uh, administrating committee. Um, and there are always two of the pastors together when this goes on. They don't do it by themselves. Oh yeah, more for the. We don't really. We don't. Uh, some of the bigger hospitals do, but usually these things happen fairly quickly. Uh, you don't really have time to get a committee together. Um, but I think it's a it's a great idea to have several people that you can call in for a situation like that. Um, and when you're not not sure what to do, I think it's a great idea. Yes.
directly contradict and say, you know, I actually oppose this worldview. So the question is, in our, you know, in the way that we're taught, uh, it's really secular humanism. How should we respond to that as students, as residents, or whatever? Uh, and you know, I don't think there's a, a, a blanket answer to that. Uh, personally, I would, I would want to speak up, but I think the best answer is the Holy Spirit can tell you. Uh, ask the Holy Spirit to show you, and and uh, He can really, He's the one who gives the answers in those situations. Sometimes it's best to be quiet, and sometimes He wants you to speak up. So I know that's not an easy answer, but it's the one that's, I believe, right. Yes? If uh, this young child had um, never woken up and died, and then you had a lady that came in later when you were out of antibiotics with urosepsis, and you had nothing to give her, what would be your thoughts then, and how does God's sovereignty interplay with how you handle these situations? Yeah, good question. If, if this uh, young man had died, and then another woman, a patient had come in who needed those antibiotics and I didn't have them and that patient was going to suffer or die because of that decision, how would I handle that? I think what I would do is if I had that second patient, I would just say, God, you, you, know, you let this first situation develop. You sent that person to me. I obeyed you as best as I knew how. Now I'm counting on you to help me with this situation. Either heal this woman outright or help her survive or send us some more medicine some other way. Over and over again, God has provided medications um, that we needed for different situations. Just, I mean, it's just unbelievable. Somebody, a, a package comes in the mail. It's been on the way for three months. We never get medicines in packages because half of them are stolen. You know, and that shows up in the pharmacy, and there's the medicine. Or somebody, uh, somebody shows up, uh, you know, from the states and say, "Oh, by the way, I brought this package of medicines." It just happens over and over again. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, you, my time's up, and. Uh, God bless all of you. Thank you.